Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first Youth Forum of the school year. I'm Rimi Orisanya, a member of the Youth Forum Council, and we are so glad that you have decided to join us for today's important conversation. Ten women, all contributors to a book titled Yes, She Can. Ten stories of hope and change from the young female staffers of the Obama White House on a mission to share diverse stories of public service in order to inspire others to serve. In this anthology, For Young Woman, by Young Woman, the authors feature 10 never-before-told stories, one from each of the women who joined the government in their 20s with the hope of making a difference. Each woman recalls her personal experience of what it was like to literally help run the world. Today at this City Club Youth Forum, four contributors to Yes, She Can discuss the wisdom they wish they could impart to their younger selves and a message about the need for more women in government. We look forward to a very dynamic discussion that should not only motivate and inspire students on the Youth Council, but one that will inspire young people all across the nation and beyond. What was it like working in the White House? How can one inspire change in public service? Our panelists are here today to shed light on some of these questions. Allow me to introduce them. First, we have Jenna Brayton, Professor of Public Service and former member of the White House Digital Strategy Team. Our next panelist is Elle Celeste, who served in the White House as former Assistant Director of Biomedical and Forensic Sciences in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Up next, Nita Contreras, an environmentalist who served as former Assistant Staff Secretary in the White House. Finally, we have Molly Dillon, a civil rights advocate who served on the White House Domestic Policy Council in the Office of Urban Affairs. Last week, I was in the White House for the first time. I met with President Trump and Vice President Pence alongside other youth leaders across the country. To be in that space truly was a humbling yet majestic experience. To imagine these women walking those halls, not as visitors, but as employees, leaders, and decision makers is something that inspires me and makes me especially excited for this forum. Here to guide our discussion is senior at Hawkins High School and Youth Forum Council President Sam Lee. Sam, I turn the forum over to you. Thanks, Emilio. And I'd just like to say thank you to each one of you for taking the time out today to talk with us about this really important topic. And a quick thank you to all our Youth Forum Council members in the room. This doesn't happen without you guys, so please, like, thank you. So obviously, your positions are all very lengthy and therefore show <laughs> impressiveness, but could each of you just elaborate a bit more on what you actually did during the Obama administration? Sure, yeah, you want us to just go down the line? Yeah, yeah, just go. Great. Um, so when I was at the White House, I worked in the Office of Digital Strategy, 
which my team actually used to like to say that um, we sort of helped the president find his voice online. So um, on my team, there was a number of people who did a number of different things, but largely we sort of focused on social media. Anything, anytime you basically saw the president on the internet, um, whether under the White House brand or under a different one, that came out of my team. And we can all thank Jenna's team for putting the president on Twitter for the first time ever in the Obama administration. <laughs> yeah. Stressful. <laughs> so I want to thank the City Club and the Youth Forum and Sam for having us here. Thank you guys. It's so nice to be back in Ohio, the heart of it all, in my hometown. I talk about Ohio a lot and they hear all of this. And for many of them, it's their first time here. So we, we have to show them a good time. Um, so in the White House, I was the assistant director for biomedical and forensic sciences, and that sounds very impressive, but what it really meant was I worked with scientists in government to make changes, to advance policies, and to ensure that facts and truth were underlying all the decisions we made. And then I worked with scientists outside government to make sure we were staying up to date on everything going on, and we'd actually bring them in to brief the president on things happening in the world. Um, was assistant staff secretary and my role was basically to help um, put together the president's daily briefing book. So I worked with a team of six. Um, every day we would have one of us on call and we would make sure that anything that the president needed, basically every piece of paper he touched, uh, came through our office. I worked on a team uh, called the Domestic Policy Council, and within that, uh, a smaller group called the Office of Urban Affairs, Justice, and Opportunity, and we were basically the president's uh, civil rights policy team. So we worked on everything from housing to labor, child welfare, voting rights, criminal justice reform, um, gender equality, LGBTQ equality, kind of you name it, we probably had some role in it. Great, thank you. So this is going to be a vague question because <laughs> I expect a lot of different answers, but what was that spark that, wanted, that caused you to want to make a change in this nation? <laughs> I don't know that there's one spark, right? I think it's a lifetime of growing up and experiencing the world around you. When we were in high school, the Iraq war started. We were in middle school when September 11th started. I mean, if you think about the context in which we grew up, I think there was a big call to public service just in general. Um, but, you know, having family that prioritized service was big for me, and so, and I'm from Illinois, so when my senator became president, I was super interested. <laughs> Since you guys are writing college applications, at least some of you right now, I can, the essay that I wrote actually kind of gets to that point. So when I was younger, I was lucky enough to take a long extended trip to India, and I got to see firsthand um, a different culture, a different economic system, and extreme poverty for the first time in my life. And I ended up writing my college essay a decade later on that experience. And that um, glimpse into something that was unknown, that was different, and finding my relation to that was one of those things. And my family is a family of service. Many of you may know that. It's in the book, so you can read it since we gave you each a copy. Um, so it was always underlying that. But I will say that a trip to India at that age really opened my eyes. And I think that's actually the first line of my college essay was this opened my eyes. And so since you guys are all going through that, I reflected on that moment a lot, and so that trip to India was a big piece for me. Yeah, and I will add to you will probably hear this a lot from me because I'm sort of a Barack Obama super fan. <laughs> um, but for me, actually, it was really about him as an individual. So for me, I felt very inspired by his call to action and him as a as a person and as a leader. And so, like Molly said, I I also am from Illinois. I also grew up in Chicago, and um, sort of that. I was exactly the right age that that movement, you know, sort of occurred in 07 and 08, and I really felt deeply connected to that. And 
I think for me, um, both my parents are public school teachers, and I grew up um, being deeply appreciative of the work that they did to educate people. Um, but I saw how hard they worked, and I thought there's no way I could ever be a teacher for <laughs> for how for how much time they spent, how much time I spent helping grade and work in classrooms. Um, and so then I went into public service, which was <laughs> a much higher paying job. <laughs> Not at all. Um, but it's funny to, to kind of come full circle and end up there. Um, and I think that you know my parents really inspired that and instilled that in me. And I similarly actually um, lived in India for a short period of time, but I was in college. Wow. And um, knew that I wanted to kind of affect change in some way and uh, came back and someone had told when I was talking about that experience about my time in India, they said, you know, it actually sounds like you're really interested in public service. Have you ever thought about government? And it was the first kind of aha moment that I had that kind of connected, you know, all of these connected experiences I had to an actual career path. So we all have these different motivations, some from really cool places. <laughs> and so you have that motivation, you enter politics. What are the expected and unexpected challenges you face as a woman? I think there are some that are unique to being a woman, but there's some that I think people don't know about that are just unique to being in government. So one, there are no instructions for anything. You show up and it's how do you send out invitations? How do you put something together? And being able to adapt on your feet and be a quick thinker is actually probably the most important characteristic you need in one of those spaces. And I actually think women are uniquely suited to that because we're often thrown into those situations. So I actually found being a woman a positive in that sense. A plus. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Um, I would say that some of the challenges are, and I actually say this on the first page because I don't think people talk about this enough, but finding what clothes to wear in a professional environment is very hard for women and it's a different set of experiences. And so if you're standing there looking at your closet, we have all had that experience. We all have it daily. And I just want to put that out there that that's actually a hard thing to think about when you're in those spaces. Um, I would say going into meetings and knowing you're the only person that looks like you in the room, whether that's because you're a woman or you're a person of color, happens a lot in the current government spaces that we have. At least it even did in the Obama administration. I know it did in the Trump administration where I also served. And being able to ask good questions and assert yourselves in those spaces is not always straightforward. And so the one tip I would say is coming up with a question or two ahead of time and knowing a question you're going to ask is a great way to enter a conversation if you think you're going to be uncomfortable in a new space. And that's something I did a lot in the White House. And I think on your point too, just the world we exist in is largely designed for men in so many different ways from like chair the, the chair, chair height, height the, the temperatures that we regulate our offices with are based off men's biometric like statistics, like what, what temperatures they run at versus women. Um, even President Obama talked about this in one of his speeches. He said that um, Mrs. Obama's shirts cost more to dry clean than his, and that's because the press that they use for shirts is designed for a men's shirt at dry cleaners. So there are like all these different ways, the standing in front of your closet, um, women spend more time and money on getting ready basically on average, and so I, we would sleep less than our male counterparts because we had to wake up earlier, because if you didn't and you showed up, people would say, are you okay? You don't look so, you look <laughs> sick, are you okay? So wow. there's that thing, I, we just don't talk about that much, I feel like. One of the things we also talk about in our book, which is one of my favorite things, um, we all had a box of shoes underneath <laughs> our desk because there's the practicality of you know needing to walk fast and have flats, but then also going into a professional meeting or if you're you know walking into the White House, having really nice shoes, right? And there's there's a balance of comfort, um, practicality, and style that again we all talk about because it was something we had to 
had to deal with. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because like even if for high school speech innovators, I see females do that. Like I see them walking with heels before they enter around and then they usually win. But like <laughs> that shows that like, yeah, it really is a life, a life moment. So elaborate more on how the origins of this story began. Where, what was the point when you were just like, yes, we should sit down, we should write this book, we should do this whole amazing thing? Looking at me, um, <laughs> because so I compiled the book and um, you know I stayed in the White House till the very end of the administration, and so 2017 was um, tough. I think for a lot of people um, in many different ways, and for some obviously way more than others. Um, but watching the things that we had worked on get rolled back, it was just it felt very dark. Um, and uh, our literary agent actually was the one who first had the idea to write a book and um, I, I thought that it would be fun to write it as an anthology with my friends. I mean I spent so much time inside the White House that some of my best friends are the people that I worked with um, which is really lucky and um, you know women's stories aren't often told. Um, when you read your history textbooks and you read about like the Revolutionary War and then there's like a box on the side about like, oh yeah, this one woman was there and she did like one thing. <laughs> and that's, we wanted to make our voices part of the historical record, part of the presidential record because we were there. The, you know, no matter our seniority level, the White House could not have run with um, all the young, without all the young people that were there. And so um, happened that a lot of them are women and we're just 10 of many young women that work there. And so um, our editor was like, 10 is enough. <laughs> um, and, but we could have filled volumes really, I think. Wow. So, and we wanted, you know, more people in public service. It, yeah. it, we were really inspired also by all the women who were running for office. and. You know, that's awesome and we 100% support that. But every woman who is elected, every person who's elected needs a staff. And the staff that's on the ground is actually the ones who are influencing policy, making decisions, like changing their communities. And so we want to train up the next generation of staff too. If you guys watched some recent congressional hearings, which you probably haven't, but you may have seen on Twitter, <laughs> that AOC, after a hearing, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, gave a shout out to her staff because they're the ones that research those facts. They're the ones that put the memos in front of them. And who writes those is just as important as who's sitting there delivering the For message sure. sometimes. For sure. Yeah, yeah staff. Yeah, staff. <laughs> who knew? It's our time to shine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is definitely one of the more uplifting forms we have, so thank you. <laughs> so do you think the role of a young female entering the White House has changed from the past administration to the current administration in any way? So I, I will take that since I have worked in both administrations. Sure, sure. And I wanna start with saying, I didn't know I was gonna stay at the beginning. I was flying back from President Obama's farewell speech in Chicago and I got a note that said, don't check out, which means like hand in your laptop, hand in your badge come to the office and I was asked by the transition team to stay on and to keep representing my portfolio but to also take on a lot of the portfolios that were being left behind by people who were leaving. And to be really clear that in the White House, um, most people have to leave when the administration changes over. They don't choose to leave. It's by nature of how they're paid. It's very wonky and silly but they all have to leave their jobs. I was in a position where I could stay so they invited me to stay. And I walked into that building every single day for six months. I went to the Women's March on the 21st and I went to work the next day in that building. And I think that's a really important thing that I was able to stand on both sides of that fence within 24 hours of each other. And it's a huge privilege that we're able to do that. It's also a huge privilege that I could walk into that building and feel safe. And I wanna recognize my colleagues who didn't feel safe walking into that building. As a white woman working on science, 
largely the things I were working on were not influenced by what you guys saw in the news every day. And so I didn't go to the office scared that something was gonna be rolled back. I didn't go to the office scared that someone was gonna say something to me. And I recognize that point of privilege. At the time, it was hard. Um, I wasn't really thinking about that, but in reflection, that was a huge piece of why I was able to stay and to do that work. And I think it's really important to acknowledge institutional knowledge. So what I learned in Obama helped me be effective on a few issues in the Trump administration while I was there. I was able to write policy memos when the new team had never seen a policy memo before. Mm -hmm. And so to think about those types of things that you can bring, and I really want the government to work. And to work well, you need people who know what they're doing. And I was someone who knew what I was doing. And so I stayed, and I did as long as I could, and then I was asked to leave six months later. Um, but I'm very proud of staying and proud of that work, but I want to acknowledge people that couldn't stay for a whole bunch of reasons. Elle, what, what happened to the Office of Science, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, so the Office of Science was closed on June 30th when I was asked to check out. Wow. Would Not to be a downer. <laughs> <laughs> you said we were too happy. <laughs> I see. Would any of you like to elaborate on how you think the role of a female, in, I guess, in politics right now might be changing? I don't, I mean, I, I can talk about my office specifically. I don't know that it affects maybe the way women are, but but you'll see that offices are, are behaving differently, right? When you have, um, I think that we've had a lot of historic kind of consistency. And one of the things that we do when we do transition is, is we prepare these huge binders of materials about issues that you're working on, how to, you know, get policy passed, how to move, um, for my office in particular, how to move memos from each of the policy shops to the president for approval and what that looks like and who should sign off and who should have eyes on it. Um, and a lot of that has changed, right? Um, and, and it's prerogative of any administration to come in and actually do that. Um, I actually was also asked to stay, um, which is unusual because I was a political appointee um, and not kind of working in an, um, in an agency. And uh, I, I I contemplated it. I, um, I had just started grad school, my master's. Um, I had just bought a condo in the city, and I was like, okay, let me be realistic. I don't have a job. It's January 2017, and I should think about all these financial obligations I have. Um, and I thought about what that would mean for me as a person, right, if I had stayed in the administration. I think, um, I think that my role would have looked and does look very different. Um, the people in my office, uh, or the, my former office, don't. Um, don't travel with the president. Um, there's a little bit of a different process in terms of how paper gets to the president, how he signs off on things. Uh, so I think that if I had stayed, I, I think that the role for me would have looked very different. I can't speak to that for every woman and, and maybe the women who are in the office or working in the White House, but. Um. Yeah, and I can speak, so since I worked on gender equality policy and of the four, I'm probably the most like, my issues are the most political. Um, and when I talked about seeing things that I worked on get rolled back, um, one of the things that I worked on was um, equal pay for women. Mm -hmm. um, women are paid 80 cents on the dollar. That number is far less if you're looking at black women, if you're looking at Latinx women, if you're looking at Native American women. Um, and so we instituted uh, a policy with the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that would require companies to submit pay data by race and gender so we could better look to see if they were breaking an existing law that said you can't pay men and women differently or you can't pay people differently because they are different races. Um, and that policy to help increase pay for women was rolled back by the president's women's policy advisor. So it's really hard for me um, and 
you know, I, I think there are a lot of senior women in the White House, and like I want to be happy that there are women in leadership roles, but you have to look at not just what roles they have, but what are they doing with that power. Yeah. And if they're rolling back gender equality, then what's the point? Right. Would you like to elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <cool. laughs> so this book obviously chronicles your time in the White House, but where does one go after the White House? How do you transition out, and where are we now? Sure, yeah, so I can talk a little bit about that. Um, it, so as a Barack Obama superfan, it was very hard for me, <laughs> although I'm sure, I'm sure it's very hard for many, many people for many different reasons. Um, but I, I really did actually struggle a lot when I left. I wasn't sure exactly what a post-Obama um, life looked like. And for me, I ended up deciding to start teaching. So I am now a university professor, and I did that in part because Barack Obama was once a university <laughs> professor. Really are a super fan. I know, it's really, it's ridiculous. Um, so as you guys heard, I was asked to leave by the current administration, um, but luckily, I had a number of friends in government, and I ended up as a senior advisor at one of our federal agencies that does work in the sciences. Um, this is because I worked on an issue, forensic science, which is what the science you see in like NCIS and CSI, what science we use in the criminal courts, and I had some ongoing projects. So he brought me in, I helped advise on those projects, um, and recognized that science wasn't going to be a priority at this moment, and that's where my background was, so I looked for something new. And I ended up moving to the private sector, and I work at a biotechnology company in Boston that does drug discovery for serious diseases. And it's been really fun to be able to be a science nerd there for a while. And then I also do this book, and we go around the country talking about these issues because this is something that, this is where we can be effective as public servants right now, and this is our service in giving back. Just to be clear, I also do this book, yeah. in <laughs> case you didn't know. Fair. Um, I also left, um, as I mentioned, I, I started grad school, so I um, spent two years getting my master's. Um, and while I was doing that, I worked at a, well, I still work at a company that does renewable energy. Um, so I started kind of as an assistant, and now I work for the CEO, kind of advising on domestic and international environmental policy. Um, so I, like I said, I stayed till the end of the administration, and it seemed like everything was on fire. So I went into state government afterwards, and I did much similar work. So I worked on civil rights policy um, in the governor's office in New York, um, and which was great because so many things that we care about can we can affect them on the state level so i got to do that i um, authored the the governor's women's agenda in 2018 um, it was a 30-point agenda that advanced gender equality and so in a number of different ways for everything from like new state buildings that get built um, and new pub publicly accessible buildings have to have um, diaper changing stations in all gender bathrooms not just women's rooms um, and you know like that's when I say this world is designed like for men it's also like designed so that they don't have to like worry about that kind of stuff um, so yes yeah, so I went to state government and now um, I'm working on the book um, what does one do when they leave the White House they wrote a book I guess and um, and work with um, nonprofit organizations mostly fighting on gender equality issues so you all have clearly amazing experiences from the White House in very different sectors. So I would just like to ask, what are the top three issues you think America should be addressing the most right now? And two characters who can influence it, what can the White House do and what can people, the youth in here do? Not that people are old in here, I'm just saying the youth in general. 
a multi-point question that we have yeah. to yes. handle all at once. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> so, one issue? Wait. We do one at a time, maybe, and then come yes. back on other sure. issues? Yes, Valerie. Because I can say the one issue that I know is not being covered in the White House right now that's near and dear to my heart is forensic science in our criminal courts. Spoiler alert, a lot of it is junk science. It is not leading to better outcomes. I sat with people who'd been on death row for crimes they did not commit based on bad scientific evidence because someone here is a scientist and they think it is true. And so one thing the White House could do and one thing I did do while I was there was we can write reports. <laughs> not very fun, but people often use them later. So some of the reports authored out of the White House have now been introduced into actual criminal proceedings across the country. So I authored two reports on medical legal death investigation, which is how do we find out how people die? And those are out there in the world. So the White House can say those types of things. The White House can also instruct the Department of Justice to change certain things, not everything, but certain things, and provide funding to help them do that. So that's one way the federal government can do that. Here in state and local, you can support organizations and elect progressive prosecutors who want to take a look at that. Um, you can support Ohio in putting a forensic science commission in place. Texas has this. Texas is leading the world on this, or leading the country on this. Um, and so there's a number of things here in the state of Ohio you could do to advance and ensure that good scientific evidence and valid scientific evidence is in the criminal proceedings. I've got my two, so can I do both back to okay. back? Um, I've got like five actually, yeah, but I'll limit myself. <laughs> um, so one is um, the issue, so there's something in Congress that they've been trying to pack passed called the Equality Act, mm -hmm. and that would make it illegal to um, fire someone, to deny them an apartment, like all the things that are covered in the Civil Rights Act that we covered under race, national origin, sex, et cetera, um, but it would make it illegal to discriminate based on um, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and there's actually a really important Supreme Court case happening right now yeah. today um, where they're arguing, the federal government is arguing that gay people should be allowed to be fired because they're gay. Um, so, or that a trans person can be denied, you know, uh, an apartment rental because they're trans. So I think that's a really important issue. Um, we, our, our hope is that the Supreme Court rules the way that we want. Um, if they don't, Congress can still act. And if they don't, which they haven't, um, we can make, we can change our laws at the state level. So there are lots of states that have implemented their own, not like really comprehensive non-discrimination laws, made it a hate crime um, to, to physically attack someone because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So that's kind of the whole, the whole range that um, you can affect that issue. And then another one um, is, completely separate, but the issue of foster care. So there are about 400,000 young people in foster care on any given day in the US. Um, they, compared to their peers, basically fare worse on every metric. Um, a higher percent of youth aging out of foster care have, um, PT more of them have PTSD than veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, they have about 2% will graduate from college. 50% um, will become instantly homeless the second they turn 18. Um, and we don't do enough to address those needs, but also the root causes. So the, where Elle's work and my work come in into contact is something like the opioid crisis um, has really increased the number of kids in foster care. And these are kids who are um, in the care of the United States government and we are failing them every day. And so there are things the federal government do, can do to protect them. Um, and there are also things that we, similar to what I just said about um, LGBT equality, state government is, you know, we have to fight for our rights in our states. Um, and sometimes when the states do things, it makes, a federal it makes it easier for the federal government then to follow suit because they yeah. see that it happens and the whole world didn't fall apart because you let gay people keep their jobs. So um, that's, 
that's those are my two things, but I also have like 17 more. So like, how much yeah. time do you have? <laughs> exactly. How many more do you want? <laughs> I think for me, the big thing is climate change. Um, you know, recently we had the Climate Week, um, and you know, Greta Thornburg from Sweden came and talked at um, at the UN, which was like an incredible, yeah. um, moving moment. But there are things that we should be doing domestically. Um, I think that. We're, we're clearly not doing enough, and, and if it, and if federal policy is not going far enough to keep us in Paris and to make sure that we're setting ambitious goals, I think then it falls on states um, to step up, right, and to continue to fight and make sure that we are we are doing things to protect um, the earth and our country for future generations and especially our youth. And I think that Greta is such a great example of someone who is young, who is passionate, um, who is making a big difference, right? She's showing people that. It, you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be a professional working in the space to voice your opinion and to actually have a, a, a stake um, and, and, and make a difference. I want to do two quick wonky ones because you guys might not have heard of them, but I think they're really important where a youth voice can also make a big difference. And so one is on paying your interns. And so I think this is something our whole group cares deeply about yeah. is a number of us got our jobs in government because we were unpaid interns first. But taking an unpaid internship is also a huge privilege. You either have to be at a school where the school is supporting you and doing that, or you have to have a family that can step in and pay for things like food and a roof over your head. And we were all very lucky to have one of those circumstances and feel very strongly that we'd have better policy in government if we had more people there and more people who had diverse backgrounds there. And so pay your interns. If you are at a company, pay your interns. Uh, the federal government can work on this by passing legislation. State government can work on this by also passing legislation. So go to the state house and ask the state of Ohio to pay all interns in government. The other is a weird gun issue because I care deeply about this. And one of our other co-authors who's not here would say this if she were. So I want to say that for her. Is not for her, but thank you, Vivian. And <laughs> one is the background check system that we already have fails. It fails every single day because the data that we need isn't in it. And reporting data to that system is optional. So two things you could do. One, at the federal level, we can mandate reporting into the gun background check system. So if you commit a crime somewhere in Florida, it'll never be reported to the federal government, and you could go buy a gun in the next state. The other thing you can do is go to the state of Ohio and say, you must report data. Go to your city and say, city, you must report data to the system because I don't want someone getting a gun they shouldn't have. So two little wonky ones, but I think really important where you guys can make a difference. Yeah, it looks like we have, you guys can find me later. <laughs> it's all good. All right, thank you. Um, my name is Nicholas Caraballo. I'm a senior at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Today we are enjoying a Youth Forum panel with four of the authors of the book, Yes, She Can, 10 Stories of Hope and Change from Young Female Staffers of the Obama White House, featuring Jenna Brayton, former member of the Office of Digital Strategy, El Celeste, former assistant director for biomedical and forensic sciences at the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and Nita Contreras, former assistant staff secretary of the Office uh, for Staff Secretary, and Molly Dillon, former policy advisor for urban affairs, uh, justice, and opportunity at the, at the Domestic Policy Council. Our moderator is Youth Forum Council President and Senior at Hawkins School, Samuel Lee. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone. City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you are joining us via the live stream and would like to ask a question, please tweet it to at City Club Youth and we'll ask as time allows. We ask that your questions be brief, to the point, and actual questions. 
<laughs> Holding microphones today are youth council members Morgan Monsmith and Kasav Kosana. May we have the first question, please? Or while you guys wait, I want to thank Sam for doing yeah, a great yeah. job moderating our panel. Thanks, Thank Sam. <laughs> I bought you guys a minute. <laughs> but not all at once. <laughs> Yeah, how did your education prepare you for the role that you had in the White House? And what was your education? Sure, so I can take it. I think they're looking at me because I'm a teacher. <laughs> um, you know, so actually, um, I have some conflicting feelings about this, but I, but I just seeing the education system from a bunch of different lenses. But I think as a student, one of the smartest things that I did actually was major in a liberal arts space. I, I majored in government and communications, and um, actually, my master's degrees are in government and education. And I think that that was actually really critical because personally, I believe that the thing that prepares you best for the world today, the world we live in currently, is to be able to think critically, to be able to find information, not necessarily to know information, but to be able to find it and identify good information from bad information, and to sort of learn to do research. And um, a lot of the things that a liberal arts education teaches, a liberal arts education teaches you how to think rather than necessarily like what to think about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really, really important today because the world is changing so much that sometimes, I don't, I don't wanna throw like the university system under the bus, but sometimes um, you know, when you focus too much on a specific discipline, that discipline has changed by the time you get into the workforce. So to me, I think I'm very lucky in that I found those, those spaces and that um, you know, they sort of prepared me in that fashion. So for students out there thinking about what they wanna do, um, you know, if, if, you, if you love a specific subject, go for it. But if you're feeling a little bit lost and feeling like you don't really know where to start, I would suggest starting with something that teaches you those specific skills. So my education started right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, actually in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and then I moved here to Cleveland and I graduated from Laurel in 2006. And I went to Wesleyan University where I studied biology and feminist gender sexuality studies. And I couldn't agree more with everything you said about a liberal arts education being that great first step. Um, I then went on and did a graduate program in biohazardous threat agents and infectious disease. And I also went to law school at The Ohio State University, so I'm an attorney, um, barred here in Ohio. And that's a lot of deg degrees, but I will say the most important thing I did was to figure out what I was interested in and what I cared about and learn as much as I could about it. And because I did that, I had this kind of weird wonky background of like, genetics and privacy and security and ethics that when the White House was interviewing me for my internship, they said, oh, we were just thinking about that. And I was able to say I had a background in that, that, and that, and it fit together for me to get that first step into the White House. And so I would say all those degrees only are as good as the things you care about and are willing to advocate for on a daily basis. So figure out what you care about and study that as much as you can. Yeah, I also uh, benefited from a liberal arts education. Um, I studied international relations in undergrad, um, energy policy and climate in grad school. And um, But in my undergraduate school, I, I was an IR major, I was a dance minor, I was a religion minor, and I had a certificate in environmental studies. And none of those are seemingly crossing at all, but 
But what I liked was I, I had to learn about how to make connections between each of them. And I did an interdisciplinary project on religion and international relations and water quality. And, and I think that being able to tie those things together when you get into a space where you're trying to find connections, right, especially across government agencies, people who don't necessarily talk to each other and could be siloed, um, finding those connections is really important. And I agree that kind of learning to think critically um, and, and make those connections just was really beneficial for my career. Um, I studied sociology as an undergrad at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and um, it was a, a subject I didn't even know existed until I went to an open house for sociology um, uh, during orientation, um, and uh, I loved it. And it's basically the study of society, and so I learned about all of the problems, and then I really wanted to figure out how do we solve them. So I have a master's degree in public policy from Georgetown, um, and my one piece of advice is that a liberal arts degree as well, two, two of them, um, is that take statistics courses because you you need to be able to understand data and research and how to intake it and separate the good from the bad and actually be able to read studies because it makes you a better policy advisor, it makes you a better consumer of the news. When you can say like, hey, well, did causation, correlation, different things, you know, things like that. And then the other thing I'll say is that um, the, the foundation for education obviously was on my debate team. Um, <laughs> laughing because I talk about it all the time, um, but uh, the Illinois Congressional Debate Association where I learned how to figure out good research from bad research, how to make your point and how to argue, how to understand what the other side is saying and, and use that to make your point stronger instead of weaker. So if you are thinking about joining the debate team, I highly recommend. <laughs> Surprised it took you that long. I know. I know. <laughs> it's only a natural fit. <laughs> Have you... Have you ever received an order that you felt was morally or ethically wrong? An order. An order. <laughs> I don't know that I was ever ordered to do anything. Uh, no, I was never ordered to do anything. Um, I will share a story from after transition that uh, was about a policy area I worked on in the Obama administration. And so I'll start by saying this is based on a piece of technology that I won't go into the details on just because it'll take a long time. But there is a type of technology called rapid DNA. And this is uh, a machine you can put in either a police station or a prison or a lab where it probably belongs and run someone's uh, cells through it and figure out what their DNA signature is. And this technology has been in development for a very long time, but it wasn't quite ready for what we thought in the Obama administration to be kind of the street, to be used by people who aren't scientists, because this is really special scientific information. And so for a long time, we kind of didn't let it move forward out of that space. It stayed in the lab where people who were trained to use it used it. And that was like one of the big things is like, what are, what are the right controls you need to put in place? And I think that's a really important role of government is thinking about those controls, because our constituency in the White House was everyone. We weren't advocating for the people making the machines or the people sending the machines or the people using the machines. It was every person in the United States. And so with that lens, and I think the Obama administration took that lens really seriously, we said, with that as our constituency, we shouldn't be moving forward. Um, when the transition happened, the bill came back up in Congress. We had to write a statement of administration policy. I drafted kind of a similar statement as we've been working on. The same things were true in my mind in the scientific community and in other advisors' minds. And we took that forward. And ultimately, after many, many meetings, were overruled. And that moved forward, and it was signed into law. And that technology is now being used by people who aren't trained to use it. And I think 
But I tell that story because I think the constituency piece is a really important part of government and knowing who you're representing when you're in that role and taking that representation seriously. And I do believe that we did that in the Obama administration. So that wasn't so much an order I received, so I'm sorry I kind of went around your question. But it was something that changed over time when leadership changes, and that's why it's important who sits in those offices and who's representing you, who is their constituency, and who are they caring about each day. Hi, my name is Anthony Colley from Design Lab, and my question is, how does the federal government affect the kids in Cleveland? How does it affect kids? Um, it affects everything in your life. So it's everything <laughs> from the sidewalks that you walk on down the street to um, go to school, to what's served in your school lunches, to what's taught in your in your classrooms, the standards that we hold your teachers to. Um, if you're a kid who is in foster care, the government is like your parent, so they're responsible for making sure that you have a house and that you have clothing and um, you know the government is also responsible we have something called child labor laws right which says that we don't want children working in factories which is what we used to have in the United States we want you in schools so it's it is if you're a fish it is the water you're swimming in it's basically policy from the federal government it's everything kind of around you which is all the more reason to care about it <laughs> yeah it's a great question Um, what, are, what are some differences you've seen between the Trump and Obama administration? How much time you got? <laughs> one of you guys? <laughs> well, I could just say one relatively obvious one, but um, they use Twitter in a different manner. <laughs> Thanks, that, one's a little, that one's a little personal, <laughs> but yeah. Um, the, prior, the priorities are very different. Um, I think Working on the policy side, our priorities were equality, um, welcoming refugees, immigrants, um, you know, you know, letting gay people get married, um, putting you know, equal pay for women, kind of lots of the things you probably heard us talk about. So it's just, it's a very different set of priorities. Um, and you know, I don't work there anymore, so I don't know what it's like day to day. Maybe as much as L does, but it's very different. So as much as I was preaching for how, how important staff are, we were preaching, it's also super important who the boss of the staff is. So when you're old enough, you should definitely register to vote and, and vote um, in every election. One, so I think you've heard some of my stories, but one thing that I think we did so well in the Obama administration was open up the White House. Mm -hmm. So more visitors visited the White House in the Obama administration than ever before. And that's because they added more tour times, they invited more people in, and we as staff were encouraged to bring people into the building to help us make decisions. And so we did that in a whole bunch of like big ways. We hosted the White House Science Fair in my office where we brought in kids and their science projects every single year. Um, we, we brought in people to give us advice on specific issues. I mentioned a man who'd been on death row for 37 years for a crime he didn't commit. He got to have input into the policies that we were making. And I think that that's one thing that's not happening now, and I, I do know that because there are fewer tour times mm -hmm. and people aren't allowed to bring people in in the same way. And I think openness in government is a really big deal, whether it's here in state government or in the federal government. And so that's one I hope to see quickly change as soon as we can because I think more people giving advice is a good thing. My name is Darnell Patterson for Citizens Leadership Academy. 
Um, was there ever a time you felt unwanted or useless at the White House? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. feel like there, not every day is like sunshines and rainbows and presidential dogs. Like it is <laughs> some, <laughs> some days though. Um, yeah, I think there are days where you make a mistake and you feel really bad about it and or there are times where something you work really hard on gets you know shut down or it doesn't move forward or um, but it's all about thinking of the overarching journey kind of instead of each individual day it's more about what's the greater impact that you're having yeah I think um, what some one of the things I talk about a lot in my chapter is um, so my job our, our job in our office was to make sure that everything the president saw was in a final version, right? Perfect. Um, and so that includes, you know, no errors in speeches, that includes no errors in uh, schedule, that includes no errors in the bills he's going to sign. Um, and it's it's a super high pressure job if you're, you know, there late at night and you're working. Um, I, I made a lot of mistakes. I made my fair share. And it's, it's very hard when you take on the responsibility um, and you feel like you don't want to let the president down and you want to make sure that he does the best job he can and part of that is by you you know making sure that everything is perfect and ready um, and it can be really hard I think that you know you have to what one of the things I had to learn um, was to kind of take myself out of that not let it be upset and be about me but be about what I could do to move forward um, and what I could do to make sure that I didn't make the same mistake the next time um, so it, it definitely there were some there were some hard days <laughs> And I think one thing, just because Nita mentions mistakes, and I think it's so important to say that we all made a lot of mistakes, and you will too. That's just yeah. part of life. I got rejected from my first choice college. Me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I got rejected for a lot of jobs before I got the White House job. I got rejected for a White House job before I got my White House job. Yeah. <laughs> we all have been through those different things, and that's just part of it moving forward. And so just because we're sitting up here, and now we've written a New York Times bestselling book and look all fancy does not mean <laughs> it was a straight path. In fact, there were a lot of, like, not just bumps, but, like, walls in our way. And so when you run into them, don't worry. They'll fall down. <laughs> my family is starting all of these classes. <laughs> So women still face various issues in the United States. However, in developing countries across the world, it's often far worse. How has the United States affected change via foreign policy or foreign aid in the past, if it has done so at all? And how may it continue to do so in the future? I think one of the biggest things, and I'll, I'll climate is related to women, um, but I think it's kind of a separate issue, right? I think a lot of countries look to the US and look at what we do and what we model. Um, so not necessarily through aid, though that's a huge component of it. And I think when we set a good example and we hold other countries accountable, um, you know, either in international treaties and in international forums, um, it's, it's incredibly important. And so what I think about is we have to set a good example here. We have to lead the way on some of those issues like um, equal pay and um, fair health care access um, for women for other countries to realize that they have to do it too. I will say that the United States is the only industrialized nation and one of, I think, two countries that doesn't offer paid maternity leave. So you, that means you have a baby, you can be fired for not showing up for work. Um, Papua New Guinea is the other. Yeah. So we're in great company. <laughs> um, yeah. And so this is this. Every other country has figured this out that we all were born once. Yeah. 
um, and that it's a major medical event, no matter like how like easy it was. And um, we don't give, you know, parents, let alone women who give birth uh, or people who give birth, the a paid day off from work so that they can do so and that they can recover from that major medical um, event. Um, so there are ways that we lag far, far behind other countries. And I think yes, there are ways that we have tremendous freedom. Um, even though we're women, which in other countries is not necessarily the case, but I think there are ways that we can do much better as well. Hi, um, my name is Allison Taylor and I'm from Census Leadership Academy. Um, is it hard to be discreet about things that happen in the White House? <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I think one of the uh, interesting pieces, Molly mentioned earlier that you spend so much time there, uh, and part of it is you're not supposed to share a lot of what happens. Um, so you make friends with the people you work with because those are people you can talk to about what's happening. Um, and for me in particular, you know, I worked on the President's Daily Materials, a lot of which was confidential or classified, and so you cannot share, and you, you know you cannot share, and so you do not. Um, it is not hard. <laughs> Okay, so my question was, what were some of the challenges you faced while you were writing this book? Um, Picking one day to write about. Yeah. yeah. I think there's many, but I'll just say that one. I know you guys have others. But we only picked one day. So when you guys all read the book after this, I know you will. Mm -hmm. Each chapter is one day in our life that reflects on a single event. It might jump around in our, like, what informed that day but often it's just kind of a single event. And we all worked on hundreds, thousands of things. We worked there for thousands of days, and we had to pick one thing. And I will say that there were so many, 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 many great things. It's very hard to pick one. Also, I would say when you write a book, they you have editors, and they, mm -hmm. they'll edit your story. And especially these stories that sometimes are really emotional and personal to us, and we want to tell them just a certain way, and then they try and change it because they think maybe it's not clear, or they want to say it a different way. And having someone edit your work, it's like a real, you have to build kind of a, a callus to that, to be able to <laughs> withstand someone editing your very personal work, and knowing when you can fight them and when you have to do what they say kind of thing. That was hard. Yeah, and I would add too, I think probably all of us felt this way, but I'll just speak for myself. I really wanted um, not only like the book as a whole, but my chapter specifically to have purpose. I didn't want someone to read it and think like, that's nice, that was a nice story. <laughs> I wanted them to, put, to read it and think like, I could do that, or I see myself there, or like, I didn't know that was an option for me. And so I really wanted to convey exactly a certain way um, a few things and I also wanted to balance that with to your earlier point being discreet and um, talking to the people I really wanted to talk to which actually in my chapter is I mean in, of course in the book as a whole but also in my chapter is young people specifically my uh, the event and my chapter is all about like engaging with people between the ages of 6 and 18 um, and so that that's just there's a lot of competing things happening there that I think were very hard to kind of like align correctly Good afternoon, uh, my name is Kenny Gamble. I'm the Dean of Students from Citizens Leadership Academy Southeast. And my question is um, to direct, be directed from you to the scholars here. How important was the education you received in middle school, high school, and in college to get you to where you are in your lives now? Critical, I mean, I think, um, I, I will speak for myself, but I'll, I'll allow everyone else to speak. I think um, 
having teachers who believe in you, especially at a young and formative age, um, is so important because I, I didn't end up studying math or science, but I did a lot of math uh, in high school and having teachers who said, you are smart at this, you can do this, you should take an advanced math class when that wasn't, it's not often something that we encourage, especially women to go into, especially women of color. Um, and I think having that mentorship for me was so critical um, to, to know that I could, to know that I, I, I was smart enough and, and to be pushed to do it, to not just be able to say, oh, I don't really love math. I'm just going to study something else. It was like, no, but you actually can do this and you should do this because it's a great skill. Absolutely. The questions piece that I referenced earlier, I think, came mainly from my middle and high school experience and not college, is learning how to ask questions and then being encouraged, sometimes uncomfortably forced probably, to ask questions. Um, and develop developing that as a skill is something that I think happened earlier on. I also played team sports, and I think teams don't have to be athletic. They can be in many different ways, but being a member of a team, starting all the way when I was playing like Kiwanis as a first grader, all the way through college athletics, I was an athlete in college, was vital to that, and I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't had teams in middle school and high school that I could join and be a part of. And when I was in middle school, if you had told me that I was going to work at the White House, I would look at you like you were insane because I, I, I couldn't care less about current events and government. And, and also, I had an older brother, and this was something he was interested in. So I was like, I want my own thing. Mm -hmm. um, so one, if you're not interested at this moment in time, like that's totally fine. And you know, it's important to know what's going on around you, and, and it's good to be an informed citizen. Um, but you know, allow yourself the opportunity to grow into it if you want to. You don't have to have everything figured out when you're 12. Um, and yeah, it, or even 18. or 18 or 30. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, start start with what you are interested in and, and lean into that and see where it takes you. Based off of your experience and knowledge working at the White House, what do you think of Donald Trump's impeachment proceedings? <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> laughing at us. <laughs> I just, uh, my comment is that I think a lot about all of the times at work when I didn't break any laws every day. <laughs> so that's it. Good question. Very good question. Um, is it hard to like be a woman, like knowing that you've worked in the White House? Like, has anyone ever told you that you couldn't do it? And like, at a time, did you ever believe them? Let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> my own parents said that was not an option. So yes, uh, and that's you know my my mother would be horrified to hear me say that. But um, yeah, absolutely. For for the vast majority of my life, yeah. So just. Um, Spaces like this were not very common where I grew up. Most people didn't aspire to careers in government and certainly did not aspire to a career at the White House. And when I first started talking about this radical idea I had to work for Barack Obama, everyone was like, that's nice. What do you actually want to do? And I was like, no, you aren't listening. <laughs> work for Barack Obama. They were like, OK, but what's plan B? I was like, there is no plan B. There's only plan A. This is happening. And everyone was like, OK, that's a little weird. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, truly, yes. And, you know, even, and I would sort of go through stages where, you know, I, so I, I got the job working for him on the campaign, and then I came home with, like, another radical idea of, okay, well, maybe now I want to move to D.C. and work for him at the White House. And even still, 
Um, you know, my friends and people who knew me were like, okay, but is that practical? And I was like, well, yeah, why not? They're like, you don't, it just doesn't seem like something you could do. So, I mean, I would just encourage you to just sort of tune all of that out. Whatever it is that you're interested in, whether it's working at the White House or any career path at all, you know what you love and you know what you're capable of. And so I would just move forward. And, you know, one day those people will come to you and say, we were wrong. And you'll say, I know. One day they'll come to your book event where you wrote yeah. about working yeah. in the White House. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say it's really hard. I was uh, watching the news the other night and they were talking about a cabinet member for, I think, President Reagan. And they were showing him in these meetings and there's groups of people, of White House staffers, and they're all guys. They're all men. And so it's really hard to look at that and think like, oh, I could belong there because it, your brain internalizes that this is not a place where women are found. Um, we were lucky, you know, in the, in the second term especially, there were a lot of women in senior positions um, doing amazing things. I worked for two different women um, who reported directly to the president, and he valued their opinion. Um, so, you know, I never felt like in my job there, luckily, that I couldn't do it because I was a woman. But it, if I had looked at photos of the White House then or n now even, um, I, I would feel probably intimidated or like I couldn't. That's not right. <laughs> Hi, I'm Wen Zhao Kyu, a senior at Seoul High School, and today at the City Club, we have been enjoying a forum with four of the authors of Yes, She Can, 10 Stories of Hope and Change from Young Female Staffers of the Obama White House. Those joining us today are Jenna Brayton, a former member of the Offices of Digital Strategy, Al Celeste, former Assistant Director of, for Biomedical and Forensic Sciences in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, Nita Contreras, former Assistant Staff Secretary of the Office of the Staff Secretary, and Molly Dillon, former Policy Advisor for Urban Affairs, Justice and Opportunity at the Domestic Policy Council. Our moderator today is Youth Forum Council President and a senior at Hawkins School, Samuel Lee. All City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T. Our community partner is the Ray C. Bliss Institute of Applied Politics at the University of Akron. We appreciate the continued support of our student programming. We welcome guests at tables hosted by Christopher Celeste and the Matriarchs, along with students from Campus International School, Citizens Leadership Academy, Citizens Leadership Academy East, Citizens Leadership Academy Southeast, Design Lab Early College High School, Lutheran High School East, MC Squared STEM High School, Nathan Hale, Ruffing Montessori High School, and St. Martin de Poer High School. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the William M. Weiss Foundation, with additional support from the donors you'll find listed in today's program. We are happy to have you all here. If you enjoyed today's forum, join us November 7th at noon for the second youth forum of the 2019-2020 school year. We also want to give a special thank you to the authors for supplying a free copy of the book to every student in attendance today. They will also be signing these uh, shortly after the forum. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, panelists, and special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us, visit us online at cityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. Youth Forum members, please remain for in the For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, 
go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.